Hello everyone, this is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. Welcome to What We Gonna Do. I'm Trey Borden, and this week we are talking about elections. I don't even need to tell you how important they are. Um, we are interviewing today Morgan Harper, who is a candidate in the primary election for Ohio's 3rd District for Congress. It's an overwhelmingly Democratic district, and so the winner of the primary uh, in April would have been the presumptive winner of the November election. Um, we talked to Morgan about her campaign to unseat Joyce Beatty and how COVID-19 kind of upended and impacted her uh, primary campaign, um, and we really appreciate you coming and talking to us, Morgan, and here's what she had to say. So I think just to get started, kind of obviously your um, primary was April 28th, which is a week ago, kind of the start of this. Uh, how are you doing? Like, how are you feeling after? I mean, it's, it's a lot of buildup and then it's like <laughs> now we're a week out. Like, how are you doing just personally? Yeah, it's a lot of buildup. And then we had our first election day, March 17th. So we had kind of build up to that and recovery. And then this one, you know, I mean, it, it sucks to lose. So that wasn't good. Um, and it does feel a little bit like a morning process in a way because you're spending so much time with you know our team and we had a very we have a very close team uh, and then you just have to process those results so you know it's tough but at the same time uh, and I posted this on social media and I mean it you know a couple days after it's like, this is just the beginning and we have a lot of work to do we have a lot to build from and and a lot to learn from so I'm excited about figuring out what the next steps look like but you know it's tough it's tough to we wanted to win, so that's hard. <laughs> right, and I mean, it's, it's tough, and we're also kind of on top of everything else we're going through, right? You know, so I think that that makes it maybe a little bit more impactful. Like, how has that changed it, kind of like to be right back in this, like, ridiculous world that we're in right now? Yeah, for, for me, and I, I think the whole team feels this way, too, this is the first time I've fully absorbed this pandemic era um, just being at home without a million and one things to do all day long. So it it's tough. And, and it actually gives me a lot of perspective on what we were hearing from people we were talking to on the phones about, you know, not want, wanting to deal with the voting process. And uh, because it's, it's, it's depressing, you, you lose your jobs, we have no clarity on what's coming our way and, um, and expecting people to go through an absentee ballot process. You know, it's not fun. But um, I, you know, I'm just trying to structure my time and, and reconnect with a lot of people. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's a slog. We're in a tough period yeah. right now. And also feeling like, oh, you know, I, we really need better leadership. And, and I just, I want so badly for our generation to be able to have that voice and guide some of what's happening and, and what we have to come ahead as well. So I'm really rooting for a lot of other progressive candidates who are running. Right. So let's get back into that time, like the reason for you running. Because obviously, mm -hmm. what really impressed me about you is that you're talented and educated and, you know, could do anything you want with your time in order to make an impact. And you chose to kind of come home, which mm -hmm. I identify. Why did you want to run for Congress and kind of what did you hope to, to change? Well, in a, in a lot of ways, I didn't feel like I had a choice. And, you know, like we talked about a lot in, during the campaign, I mean, I, I got warnings to not do this. And, um, and I couldn't listen to those because, you know, I had early life experiences here that set me on the path to pursue a career in public policy, become a lawyer, and it was all with the vision of serving this community coming home eventually and 
and being able to enact what I learned eventually was the systemic change needed to actually make sure everybody gets a fair shot. And, uh, and looking around, you know, and especially having had the experience in Washington, I worked at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and, and saw what the state of Washington was. And I'm feeling like we have been bought and sold off to corporations and corporate interests. And if we're going to get our country back on track, it's going to take an entirely different style of political leader and leadership, and it has to be grassroots. And I, I felt so strongly about that. And this is the third district, my home. And I was like, we could be a part of that. And if we're not, you know, one of the youngest congressional districts in the country, one of the you know, lowest income congressional districts in the country, if we're not, and safely democratic, then no progressive legislation is going to happen. So um, we went for it. And, uh, and yeah, I just, I just felt so strongly that we are in this moment now of crossroads as a country and as a community. And we have to have leaders that are at minimum being honest about what's going on and also what are the policy solutions that are going to make sure we have a more stable future. I think for a lot of people who might be listening to this who are young and motivated and feel like so much change is necessary, but the kind of want to not hate their lives like you know congress might not seem like the most natural choice what was yeah. it like approaching this as kind of an outsider it was scary before i launched the campaign i i was having trouble eating you know and i'm i'm not an easily stressed out person so yeah. it was kind of like weird feelings for me um yeah and 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 all throughout you know just getting used to not necessarily being liked or considered uh you know just a very affable colleague which is generally i would say my experience of the professional world you know always having good relationships and um and this is a totally different ball game being in the political arena and making such a bold move against someone who is so well known and established but in many ways i mean i felt like what is the point of all of the professional experiences I've had of going to all these elite institutions. If, if I don't have the freedom to speak out about what's going on, then God help us really. Right. Right? And, um, and, and I'm, I've always been coming from a place of, of honesty. And so, you know, I think people respected that and, and more and more people came to understand throughout the course of the campaign that um, this wasn't some sort of personally motivated attack. This was a real statement about where our communities are at and my belief and, and really the movement that we built a belief in the policies that would make a difference. What's sad is that that is so controversial to people, right? right. <laughs> that we only right. have career policies. We can crush their idealism. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, crush the idealism. And by that point, you are, I mean, you're not viewing the position for, am I the best suited for it? Do I have the right skill set for it? It's just a means to an end. And I think that approach to politics needs to end. I don't know why anyone would want me running for city council, for example. I've never worked in local government. Like, what is that? What would that even mean? Um, I you know, have a federal policy background. So this is also the role in government that where I feel like I could have the most value and and why we think people have to like, you know, their dues or wait to wait their turn. That that to me is exactly why we're in the mess. That, part of the reason why we're in the mess that we find ourselves in. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is about like this is urgent. This is mm -hmm. not about like we have a you know till the rest of our lives to figure this mess out. This is crumbling. I'm fed up, and um, and you know. I've been, I've been at this and, you know, people often throughout the campaign in my life, you know, as they think maybe I'm a little younger, it's like, well, and millennials generally, right? 
I'm, I'm 30, I'll be 37 this summer. So closer to 40 than 30 at this point. Right. And, (laughs) and I've worked at a policy think tank. I worked in the federal government and the bureaucracy. I've worked for a federal judge. Like, I feel like I've earned the right to at least say what's what I think is going on. Right. Right. And, um, and again, this, this should not be controversial. And if it is, then I think it has a lot more to do with everybody wanting to protect the status quo than, actually looking about, you know, what's the best thing to move us all forward. Right. And so I think that now's a good time to move on to kind of what was the architecture of the campaign kind of pre pre Miss Rona coming through Mm -hmm. and just messing everything up. I mean, obviously you needed to educate a lot of people, not just about who you were, but, but maybe why the status quo wasn't working kind of what was your campaign strategy and approach um, initially? We launched last July and we had a heavy, heavy emphasis from the start on my personal story. You know, the fact that I was born here, that I was given up for adoption, that I lived in a foster home as an infant, that I was raised on the east side by my mom, who's a public school educator. And the reason for that was to root me in the community. I mean, we knew that one of the attacks against us, which proved to be true throughout the campaign, which I, you know, one of the things that I, I found was was quite troubling actually coming from the establishment, trying to paint me as this um, outsider, interloper, not one of us, you know? And it's like, no, I mean, this is, this is my home, this is my community and this community made me. Um, and so, you know, we really started, started fresh with that, but then also this, this message of, you know, the why I'm doing this has very little to do with me. It's about a belief in this place and really feeling like we have to, we have to all engage in this political process, the Morganized thing, which is our, our hashtag. I love that, um, by the way. I love wordplay. Yeah. <laughs> very catchy. So, um, so that was the idea. And, you know, early days, we, uh, we just, it was me and, you know, a, a few local people who had been involved in other um, grassroots movements and a son of a former colleague of mine who, you know, came to Columbus, was willing to work on it, my fiance. Um, and we started like that at my dining room table. And then my, you know, the first guy, Sage is his name, who worked on the campaign, we would just show up to civic association meetings, to um, different community events, 5Ks, and I would announce, you know, my name's Morgan Harper, I'm running for the third congressional district. Usually response is, what's that? Because most people have no idea what congressional district they live in. I tell them, you know, I'm running against Joyce Beatty specifically. And then the response was almost invariably, especially over the summer, whoa. <laughs> Yeah, what you who against who? It was like, no, no, that that doesn't just happen. You're you're crazy, you know. And I was like, no, I mean it, and this is why I'm doing this. And then people kind of pause and listen, and like, well, good luck, honey, you know. Um, but that's what it was. And we, you know, we post on social, we always had like a really heavy emphasis on social media because we were building our own movement from scratch, mm-hmm. more or less, and had to engage and meet people where they're at, which is another big theme of the campaign. We can't wait for people to just magically come to us. We had to build our own momentum. So, you know, and eventually, and that's been one of the things that's been so exciting and why I am really excited about the next steps and all of that is eventually more and more people just started to come. So it went from me and Sage to by the end of August, we got an official office space and we had a kickoff event and we had over a hundred people show up to this kickoff event very few of whom I knew um, because they had heard about it on Twitter or they had seen an intercept article about the campaign and it just steadily grew and grew. So, you know, that, that was how we built this and it, it truly has been a, a grassroots effort. When did yeah. you get an inkling that the, 
that COVID-19 could change the calculus of either how you ran your campaign or when did you start thinking like this might actually change the election date last minute? Like when did that start to come into play? That, that really for us wasn't until a couple of weeks before original election day. So you're absolutely right. I mean, for, for the campaign, it, it, it was like, before we got to Corona, it was pre-January and post-January because January was the first time that we had someone join the campaign who had any prior congressional experience because we were running with all of the Democratic presidential candidates running as well, you know, as a, a real talent vacuum. And so it took a long time for us to get the core position, like an official field director who had worked on a congressional campaign before. And once we got that, I mean, things just really started clicking. We knocked, you know, 90,000 doors or something. Door knocking mm -hmm. always had been a key part of the strategy, but we were able to accelerate everything we had built since the summer in that period and just a ton of momentum. I mean, when I tell you, like we were, it was just flying. We started to lift. We had debates with my opponent. No one thought that was a given. Um, we had two that she showed up for, two that she skipped, all of this building up towards the March 17th primary date. And then I would say like a week and a half out was when people were really starting to absorb what was going on in Italy, you know, other parts of the world. And we held our first community conversation at that point, still in person, where mm -hmm. we were talking to elders about some of their fears. And we had a nurse who had been one of our volunteers um, answer questions about how to keep themselves safe, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, the, it was really leading up to our get out the vote GOTV weekend, that final weekend before the 17th, where it was like, oh, no. I mean, this is all just like slowly we're having to restrict our activity. We were supposed to have a ton of volunteers that were local and coming in from out of town. Virtually every out of town person canceled, which made sense based on, you know, people who might be coming from DC, New York, wherever. Sure. Um, and then we ultimately had to cancel canvassing. And that was, that was really, uh, you know, it was a hard call to make in some ways because that is the root of our strategy. Right. All the door like, this knocking. is what we need to win. This is what we need to win <laughs> to make sure the people we have connected with actually vote and then we can no longer knock their doors. So we had to transition from the door knocking to just lit drops, which, you know, still somewhat effective, but a different experience. Lit drops and, just being dropping literature, like just all your written materials and saying, Yeah, just you know, at the door. Order was here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. But with a much more limited volunteer base because people were staying home. And that Sunday before the election date was when the governor finally made the call to um, to close bars and restaurants. And that's where we saw even like early voting turnout really drop off. Plummet. Ohio has three weeks of early voting before the official primary date. So we had been canvassing at early voting. And by the last day of early voting, people were starting to just pull back entirely. Um, was it still and, unclear at this point whether the election was going to proceed as scheduled or not? It, it was completely on track. I mean, on, if you can call it that. They, they were saying that, you know, we were going to March 17th, still in-person voting. And so on the phones and everything, we transitioned to mostly trying to call people phone bank. We were still telling them, go in person on March 17th. The Secretary of State and the governor held a few press conferences, the first of which was about a week and a half out where they announced they were closing Ohio State campus. And, you know, our reaction was, and I went to that press conference, actually, and I was like, well, what's the game plan to make sure that these people can still vote, right? I mean, you're going to close the campus, which agree with, but that's, you know, uh, several thousand registered voters who vote on Ohio State campus and a lot of students who might not be coming back to town. Um, so it was just like the disenfranchisement train started to just sure. really roll. We'll get into um, and it wasn't until though the night before the official election day that the governor announced he was going to 
postpone in-person voting and close and mandate that all polling locations be closed the next day. Then a judge that same night ruled overturning the governor's order saying that wasn't, he didn't have the authority to do that. It wasn't legal for him to do that until ultimately the governor came back at like almost midnight saying, no, he was proceeding with a public health order to close the polls. So that was a very chaotic night where we were just like, <laughs> oh my God, it's off. It's on. Like get all the, get out the lid drop video together. And it, <laughs> it was a, it was a mess, honestly, but you know, I mean, ultimately I wanted everybody to be safe. It was clear voters were starting to get really nervous about voting. The polling locations often have a lot of elderly people who volunteer to work them. That didn't seem like a good idea. Like we're seeing, you know, in Wisconsin that they went forward sure. with it. Um, so right call, but then, uh, but then ultimately the decisions that were made after that, I think led right. to further disenfranchisement. So I think that, you know, obviously you can't anticipate this type of pandemic. I mean, couldn't come at a worse time for you and your candidacy and mm -hmm. for a lot of other people. Um, and I think that what was really difficult, like you said, is that there's no game plan for after the change. Right. You know, so how do we, how do we now, if we're going to have weeks longer to implement a safe strategy for voting, how do we make that not equal to many, many people not being able to have access to voting? Yeah. A, how did your campaign adjust to kind of like make up the delta of that? But also, um, how do you think the existing issues around disenfranchisement were exacerbated or kind of adjusted by this? Like, did it make a lot of problems that existed worse or are there different problems? Well, the existing structure for absentee voting already is, a mess here, <laughs> to be honest. And so that, the fact, so, you know, ultimately the decision was made about a week and a half after that original election date to, um, and this was a state, the state legislature signing a bill that said, we've got a new date, it's gonna be April 28th, there'll be no in-person voting unless you have a disability or you're homeless. And it's gonna be all mail and absentee. And for a lot of people in Ohio and in the third district, this is, not, these are not people that usually vote absentee, right? So it's the first time people are even thinking about what it looks like to vote absentee while they're being told that they have to stay at home because there's a, you know, an infectious disease that's taking hold of our whole country and could kill them. While they're also learning that they are not going to have a job anymore. And we're going to give you three weeks to also make sure you get out and vote, but don't get out just figure out how to do that for your house. Send out your vote. And I mean, to me, it was that, that timeline was just crazy. You know, it's like, what is the rush when we clearly are trying to figure out how to manage this totally unprecedented situation? That was also where we had, you know, even the Ohio Democratic Party was advocating for this April 28th date. I'm not exactly sure why. Theory, you know, to wrap up the presidential primary as well. Everyone was trying to like move that forward. But, you know, it felt like we were alone in some ways, just like, what is this? And then the Secretary of State was still saying June 2nd up until the state legislature ruled. So a lot of confusion. And the biggest thing is here in Ohio right now, if you want an absentee ballot, you have to mail in a hard copy of a request form, an application to request an absentee ballot with your signature um, before they will send you a ballot. And that signature has to be the same signature. You have to vote you, to vote, basically. I mean, in terms to, of the execution of that. Yeah, yeah, the steps involved, and yeah. it has to include some form of ID. It has to match the signature that you gave when you registered to vote. If it doesn't, you and we talked to these people, got it sent back, then you have to reapply. So it's great. And then you have to provide the postage to send in that application, which is a poll tax. I mean, right. straight up. <laughs> yeah. And, and a lot. And so when you say, you know, how did this impact some already, you know, some populations that might be already prone to disenfranchisement? Well, one, as I referenced before, young people who had been sent home and are now figuring out how to 
work online in their coursework while also learning they're not going to get any stimulus payment, right? Um, they now have to figure out how to get this form and postage sent off. We talked to people, 18 year olds, who didn't know that election mail would require postage, that they don't send letters, right? So this was also learning how to engage with but the, we still the have postal stamps? system. Yeah, like, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, and I was like, yeah, I get it. I don't really send a lot of letters anymore, right? Um, immigrant community, no accommodation for translation services. There were a lot of immigrants in 11% of our districts, foreign born, who showed up for early voting because then you're allowed to bring in a translator to help you vote. But there was no, they were not included in that group of people who they upfront said would be able to show up and vote, which, you know, was only disabled. And, what, and was that a big population in terms of like who you hope would vote for you? Yes, yeah, I mean, we had strong connections and base within the Somali community here. We have the second largest Somali population in the country, in the third district, and um, also had been working quite closely with the Nepali Bhutanese refugee community, which we have the largest population in Central Ohio, that community in the whole country. So mm -hmm. that was frustrating. <laughs> um, and ultimately, you know, our whole pitch to a lot of people who we engage with, knock doors on, these are people who had given up on the political system not necessarily regular voters. And everything about this process reinforced the idea that the system is stacked against us. Our message throughout the campaign was, no, 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 come back. Like we can build and organize to change this. And then we have this extended campaign period that is, is showing everything, every suspicion that people already have. And that, you know, that's, that's very frustrating. And, and the, the people- It's disillusioning. It's very like you, let your, you trick yourself into having a little bit of hope. You're like, I know, I know it's stupid, but let me have a little hope. Right. And then, and then this, and is in this people who were immediately hit by the pandemic, not just, Oh, now I have to work from home and it's kind of boring, but I just lost my job and there is no game plan here. Um, and those, those are our base, right? Working class people. Uh, and so, you know, that, that was very, um, very frustrating. But, you know, all that being said, I mean, we, we rallied and we really did everything we possibly could to try to connect with as many people as possible, let them know about this process, mailing them the application, hand delivering the application. And people were very appreciative of that effort we put in when, you know, really the institutions that you would think, well, that we know have the resources to do these kinds of things, Democratic Party, um, the Secretary of State, the Governor, you know, the State Legislature, if they wanted to to green light funding for that, they weren't doing it. They were just like, "Oh, here's our decision on high," and people figured out. And if you know, most of the people living here don't figure it out. Well, whatever, you know. And we just couldn't accept that, so we really stepped up and tried to do as much as we could to get people still to to go through this process. If you could wave a wand and say, like, now it's a Morgan election, like, what would that mm -hmm. look like? like? How would you, within our current constraints, which don't seem to be going anywhere very quickly, I mean, there's primaries coming up in other states like New York, and what, what would it look like to make it as easy as possible for those populations in particular? Like within the corona. Yeah, I have a couple couple thoughts. I mean, one, we have to get rid of, and it seems like you know, New York, for example, has a better system of you at least can apply, and they've made some adjustments here. At least you can apply online and just request your vote. We actually have a worst case scenario here where there's a form online where you go or you go to request your absentee ballot, but it's just a form that fills out a PDF that you still have to print. So we talked to a lot of people that filled out that PDF form and thought that would automatically go to the Board of Elections, but in fact, they didn't realize they had to print out an online form 
and then still mail it in, right? So it's so confusing. So just make it that either it's in an online request or you automatically send out um, ballots. The only thing I would say asterisk in the Corona era about, you know, not not necessarily wanting the automatic sending of ballots is that a lot of people are figuring out their situation here and going through a lot of transition. And so if you are changing your address, it would be a shame for the ballot to go to an address that you're no longer living at. So making sure that people can, you know, in some way dictate what address they're going to, because we know um, a lot of people are, are in flux right now. But I will say that I, I, we have got to get people, and this is not, not the most vulnerable among us, this is the people that are comfortable, so comfortable that they don't feel obligated to research what they're voting for, that are willing to take a sample ballot or mailer that the party sends out only featuring endorsed Democratic candidates and take that at face value and just vote down the line, you know, um, voting blue no matter who. That mentality has killed us. And we have got to get out of this mindset that just because someone is a Democrat, that they are the, the person who is best serving us, or that they should not, that there's not another democratic alternative that's out there. And so um, I really, you know, think that a lot of, a lot of people who are more, you know, secure, who have the luxury of just, you know, feeling great that they are voting democratic. It's like, no, I mean, we have to be holding ourselves and our elected officials to a higher standard and people need to earn these positions, not just because some party officials have designated that they get to appear on a piece of mail. But um, that's something that really needs to change. And, you know, I was talking to a, a youth Baptist ministry group earlier this week and they were asking, you know, why is it so important to vote? And it's like, it's important to vote because we have political power when we organize and exercise it, but it's just as important to look into who you're voting for. And I don't think there's been enough of an emphasis on that second priority for us as a black community and, and as a country and as a party. We have to open up this process and make sure that people understand we have different policy positions, we have choices, and we need to own those choices and exercise them appropriately. Yeah, I mean, there's people over I mean, I'm not sure who said this, but someone was implying that you were kind of anti-black, or, or the support you were getting was like from Justice Democrats is anti-black. You're like, um, I'm black. <laughs> so, I'm black, and also the CBC takes an, 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 a lot of money from corporations, right? My opponents takes money, profited off of the payday lending industry that has wrecked incredible havoc on black community. And so, you know, I... I cannot even begin to tell you my level of frustration with um, this idea that just because you're running against a black member of Congress, and this really shows the hypocrisy of it all, even when you mm. are a black candidate, the reaction isn't, well, look, we have two black people that have different perspectives on, on what might best serve the black community, right? And the community at large. It's no, trying to somehow denigrate me, make people think that I'm not really black, um, instead of, again, being honest with people about what's going on. And that's something that we truly cannot afford to accept any longer. Yeah, I mean, honesty is not what's gotten them there, you know, I mean, unfortunately. So in this, in, so kind of getting to more tactics, what are, what were the, in your mind, the most effective ways to reach people during this kind of restricted environment? Phone banking was effective. We did a lot of phone banking. Um, we also did a lot of, you know, chase calls for um, for voters who had requested absentee ballots. The Board of Elections releases data about those 
the people whose applications they have processed, and we were able to what's called chase them um, if there are valid numbers. Now, unfortunately, a lot of the numbers are not valid <laughs> and it's disconnected. So we, as a progressive movement, as a Democratic Party, I think do need to do a better job of having good data about our voters. Um, but then also, you know, especially with races and campaigns where they have more time, thinking about using and prioritizing financial resources towards doing more mailers, which isn't a traditional tactic, I think, for pro progressive campaigns, because we're grassroots, we're door knocking, door knocking is, you know, much more effective at getting through to people. But in this era where we can't necessarily do that, then we got to think about having really engaging mailer material as well. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, that was one thing that we we tried to adjust for as much as we could, but when you budget down to spend March 17th, everything you have, and then have to build back up for an additional month, um, mm. there's only so much that we were able to do by mail, but I really encourage other, other candidates, other races to, um, to think about how to best utilize a mailing strategy, because that's what the establishment is built for, you know, is just putting a lot of money into those mailers, getting them out to people as quickly as possible, and then flooding the market with TV ads. We were able to put up a TV ad, but you know, my opponent who ultimately spent over $2 million on the race was able to put up ads all day long. And how much did you spend? We spent a little under 800,000. 800, oh, wow. So yeah, you're trying to you're trying to make up all that name recognition with half the money, less than half the money. Well, yeah, and that's how um, much she spent on the race. I know that. Well, that's how scared she must have been too. Yeah, and the state party spending money and the county party as well. So, and in terms of expertise, I mean, it's enough just to run for Congress and get your message out there and your story. With all of this, you need to become almost a public health agency. Mm -hmm. You need to become a media organization in terms of like disseminating the proper information to the community? Like yeah. what expertise do you think need to be built into some of these campaigns that wouldn't normally be? It's, it's, it's everything. It, you're right. I mean, you know, the marketing, it, it is marketing. It's, it's info. <laughs> I don't know. Infomercial is the right word, but um, being able to really like walk people through step-by-step step, uh, what's going on. We hosted weekly community conversations on Facebook to try to become, you know, a trusted uh, information source of what people were hearing about the pandemic, but also trying to use it as an opportunity to educate people when they think about universal healthcare, which for some people I think might have been a little bit more um, theoretical for some points in the campaign. It's like, no, when you have a public health or a healthcare system that is not based in profit, it allows us to better prepare for situations like these that are public health crises, right? But public health crises will never be profitable. And so our, our for-profit hospital system will never serve us as well as we should be served for these types of situations, um, yeah. those kinds of things. And yeah, and I think especially now where people are getting information from all over, it, it is incumbent on our elected officials to the ceremonial form of leadership that I know we, you know, I feel like I grew up in, we grew up in, of you have your Congress people and you wave goodbye and they head to Washington and then occasionally show up when they're running again. Nobody's got time for that, right? Because we are in trouble here, right? And, and there's never, and, and at this point, and this was a, you know, this was one thing in the campaign just in terms of like even, you know, local media covers. Like we, you, we don't have a lot of trusted sources of information. There's so much bias. And so we really need our elected officials to be people first to be for us and, and hands-on. And that goes down to serving the community, direct service. That's not necessarily something you always see congressional candidates or elected officials doing, but we got, we got to be there, not just the photo op, not just for a campaign, but like on the ground serving people. So that's how 
you know, they know you can be trusted. Right. Right. Exactly. There's, I mean, you could almost say that this actually allows people to prove what they they, they care about what they're saying, because now we're in a crisis. Like what you do during a crisis, if you stay behind your, your bubble or you're kind of removed from the population mm -hmm. that you're supposed to represent, that says a lot. I mean, I think that how, I mean, is that the best way to reach voters who, you know, maybe before they were caring about gentrification. Mm -hmm. Now they're caring about themselves being homeless with no money and there's a global health pandemic. Mm -hmm. How do you cut, I mean, how do you almost, what's the hierarchy of importance? You know, mm -hmm. like is voting even as important as, oh my God, my grandma's got pre-existing conditions for a pandemic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean that, yeah, that comes down to the individual. I, I definitely, you know, I'm thinking as, as you were talking about one guy who he had requested an application from us to, to request the absentee ballot, but by, by the time we had delivered the application and then we were calling to follow up with him to make sure he submitted it and got his ballot, is like, my mom got COVID, like, I'm done with, I'm done with the voting portion of what I'm thinking about, right? And it's like, totally understood. You know, it's, it's sad, but that's, that's where you're at. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, you have to be cognizant that people are going through a lot right now and it is hard to get people focused on voting when I think there is such a high level of disillusionment with our overall political process. But that's why I think we got to keep pushing, you know, candidates in there, we do what we can, but also those of us who now are either on the other side of campaigns or, you know, in a different lane entirely, we have to really be thinking about uh, what's the infra infrastructure we're building to improve on some of these processes, make it easier to vote, um, and also, you know, prepare, prepare for progressive campaigns of the future because we, we are it, right? And so even when we're not successful in individual election, I do think that our generation is uniquely prepared to be the type of leaders that we're describing that are fluent in all these different forms of communication that understand intrinsically what people are suspicious of in this traditional political system and to, to offer something different and fight for the policies that people are looking for. And so we've got to keep building so that we have more and more people that, that win and we gain political power. Um, I want to get your feedback or I want to get your ideas about the, up, the big upcoming election, but just to give people a grounding for how it affected your campaign. So what was the turnout after all of this you know what you know give us 2016 maybe the, the most yeah. you know most recent comparable example and then like what did happen mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so 2016 was our comp our closest comp because that was the last presidential primary for franklin county or for third district in particular there were over 120,000 people that voted in that 2016 primary democratic primary and this year with the change to the all mail and absentee and corona pandemic we surpassed um, only 60,000 people wow. you know a little over 60,000 people who voted in total so about half as many people voted do we have a and sense of who those people were we're still working on the demographic breakdown um but i will just say anecdotally and who we were able to catch on the phone it's it's who you would expect, who, who is least impacted by what's going on right now. Well, if you're art, and these are people I had individual conversations with that were very upfront about it. It's like, oh, how are you doing right now? Because that was how we were starting our calls. Like, are you okay? Do you need to be connected to community resources? And they're like, you know, I'm retired. I'm on a pension. Yes, this is, this is different because everyone else is at home too, but this isn't that different from my day to day, right? And so, you know, most and of And my people, money's fine. And the money's okay because you got a pension. It's like, you know what? No one who's under 40 is about to get a pension, you know, yeah, ever. Um, or ever, right, yeah, but, you know, I would say 
it felt like 90% of the people I talked to were 55 and above on calls mm. that we actually were able to get a hold of. And so I'm guessing, though I don't have the confirmation on it, this election skewed very much in the direction of older voters. Um, though I will say, in defense of the, the boomer generation, <laughs> that um, we did get, I mean, we got a, a fair number of people that were, that were receptive to our message, that understood, hey, we have a situation here that our generation created. We don't know what to do about it. You all have some ideas. You all need to go for it, you know? Um, but yeah, that's not everyone. And it's a lot. And also people who are more affluent, who are the, oh, this is, a, this is an inconvenience because now I have to stay at home and work remotely, not, oh my God, my whole life is crashing down around me um, and I might not go through an absentee ballot process. So my guess would be that it's skewed more affluent, uh, older, in terms of the 60,000 or so that ended up voting in this election. Which might, you know, not give a lot of liberal reform candidates, a, you know, happy feeling, you know, in terms of what they should anticipate. So I hope that some of them are watching this saying like, how do we, how do we account for that? Um, mm -hmm. What would you, I mean, specifically to the people who are still going to be in primaries, not the general election, which we'll get to in a second, but for other people who are in your exact position, and maybe they have a, a better, more adaptable system than Ohio has, like, what would you, what would you tell them? Mm -hmm. Really have to focus on the mailer, like I was saying. I mean, the mailers are just going to be so critical. And then also, I mean, one other side effect, positive side effect of this is some media buys that might have been really expensive uh, before when you're competing with a lot of companies that want to advertise or especially earlier mm. on with the presidential races, um, it, it could be more affordable to do TV. So people are at home trying to do as many TV ads as possible. And, you know, in some ways it, it breaks my heart a little bit to say things like that because that's not, you know, reflective of like a true grassroots campaign. It's like, we got to be real about where people are at and how we can catch them. So, um, so people who have a little more lead time with that, trying to make sure that they're getting out there in the ways that we do think, you know, will be effective when everyone's staying at home. Um, but, you know, but also keeping up with the real ethos of what it is to, to present a different style of leadership. And that is getting out in the community still, you know, uh, um, complying with all the state or the social distancing, but showing, showing up, you know, and, and we're right. still doing that. I'm produce giveaways and meal delivery and all that. Um, we have to continue to show what it looks like to not be about just electoral politics, to truly be down for the community, community conversations, be that trusted source of information, hosting virtual reality, virtual rallies. Um, that was one thing that, you know, I was a little skeptical of when we started, but we had uh, one virtual rally that really did capture that same feeling that I would get at the community in-person rallies that we were doing every weekend leading up to the campaign. And we had, you know, co-hosts and all that. So I do think it's possible to capture that energy and create it online. Um, but, you know, we just have to be, we have to be disciplined. We still have to be strategic and, and reach out to people. And, and people are looking for connection now, even as, you know, we all adjust, especially I would say as we adjust to this, reality <laughs> situation. Yeah, it's like surreality. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's, so but it's think, possible. But it's possible. And we have to just keep, we just have to keep going. I mean, if you had told me in January that there was something that would happen that would make me, for a time, forget about the presidential election, I would have been like, you're out of your mind. <laughs> yeah, There's literally right. no way. But like two or three weeks into this, I remember being like, I haven't thought about Joe Biden like 10 days. And I was like, uh -huh. that's insane but i think that you know after this subsides, might be a problem. <laughs> yeah, it, it, i mean that specifically is a problem but yeah. i'm just saying in general 
all I could think about was the you know import of the selection. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where we're going to shift to as this you know waxes and wanes or wanes and then jumps right back. I mean, it's very mm -hmm. possible that we could be where you were in mid-March in October, depending mm -hmm. on kind of the impact of these loosening restrictions. So mm -hmm. is there a scenario in which we, you think it's wise to, to push November back? What do you think should happen in November? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think now we have the lead time to one, create better uh, mail-in voting procedures uh, and be more proactive about getting people ballots, like some states that have been light years ahead on this, like Oregon, and, and just make that possible for people. We, you know what I would like to say, one thing very specifically, because now I see that we're talking about, and this is the other great thing about, um, <laughs> being post-campaign, but you know, a lot of the ideas we talked about the campaign that people look at you like you're crazy, right? It's like, oh, universal income. We can't just give people money. It's like, oh, well, actually, like, oh, we, just, we? we just did that. That just happened, yeah. right? Yeah, like universal healthcare. And you wanted that's that. Crazy. Right, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, jobs guarantee. What's the point of a jobs guarantee? It's that we have needs as a country that we need to be able to respond to that it might not be profitable for the market to respond to, but our needs nonetheless, and an opportunity to create more stable living wage jobs for people. I hear now they're talking about having like a contact tracing uh, workforce that helps to you know, usher in this whatever, you know, reopening, though I think it's being rushed entirely, but you know, down the line, um, how we get towards any type of reopening depends on having extreme and well-instituted you know, contact tracing everywhere. And so thinking about a workforce for that, I'd like to see an enfranchisement workforce, right? I mean, we, we do it for the census. We are willing to do it for public health. Why are we not also willing to come and meet people where they're at to make sure that they are able to vote, you know? And so um, you can get the ballot and the information. I, I think now we understand with the social distancing how to do that effectively. And that would be a way for the federal government to, to make sure as many people vote as possible. Um, and then, you know, I, I think we need to be real about some of the things that hurt us in our campaigns, like translation services, you know, even if that's not a disability, that is something that will disproportionately impact um, people who, for whom English is a second language, and especially in states where maybe they're not as up to speed on providing materials uh, in multiple languages. We need to make sure that we're pushing for that. And then, you know, preserving an in-person option if that's what it comes to. Uh, I, I think here there was a lot of confusion. It wasn't until a couple of days before on the local news, the, the, the uh, election officials started saying like, oh, and by the way, if you haven't received your absentee ballot, you can vote with a provisional ballot in person. But by, by that point, we had had almost a month of this extended uh, election period. That wasn't possible. Yeah, we were saying like, there's no in-person option unless you're disabled or you don't have a home address. So this kind of, like it has to be consistent information early, but I think there isn't a need to potentially preserve an in-person option for people for whom the mailing process is maybe not feasible. Yeah, I mean, I think that the most important thing, and that's what's so hard about this is that things being consistent, like kind of mm -hmm. sticking with something, like deciding like no matter what, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And that's what Corona has made very difficult because people feel like, well, we can't just do that because mm -hmm. we need to be responsive. Um, but I'm very concerned about how this could be used to be a gigantic tool for disenfranchisement. Um, what do you think like the longer term impact of this period will be? And, you're, and what do you hope it will result in? I hope it will result in, and in many ways, I, I think our campaign was an expression of this and, and the impact we're already seeing is pe more and more people seeing that we 
we know as much as we need to know to, to lead in some ways, right? Like we, when we get organized, we can demand more. More of us should be running for office. It's not a question of, oh, is, is it the right time? Has the right person told me it's my turn? No, it's if you feel like you have a voice to represent for your community, get out there, let's get organized and let's put ourselves out there. Because I, I, uh, I have to say, I mean, I understand the feelings of disillusionment because I don't have a lot of faith in many of our elected officials to, in a fundamental level, be honest, just be honest about what's going on and to communicate clearly to your point about what we should be doing or presenting an affirmative vision beyond just you know, bashing each other on each side, um, an affirmative vision of what a better future would look like and being willing to put the energy and the legwork and the time into organizing people to support it. So I, I, I believe that we can build for a better future, but it is still just like the original premise of why I felt like I had to run this campaign, run for Congress is it's only going to change though with more and more of us waking up who are willing to be honest and put ourselves out there and not wait demand demand change and you know who never worries about like do i have enough experience like should i have proven myself is like mediocre people who are in there now you know i don't think any of these people up in there now were like well you know what like i should probably like go back to school and like make sure no it's like yeah. the people who i think are on the ground who are smart like if you're the kind of person that actually wants to be qualified and make sure that you're able to like give authentic leadership to your community, then you're probably already light years ahead of who we got. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. so I encourage you to, if you feel that way to go about it. And um, I guess kind of lastly, now that you, the campaign is over, it's like you didn't just disappear. Like now mm -hmm. you're in this community with roots, with organizing, you mm -hmm. have much more name recognition. So what is your presence going to be in the community now? Um, yeah. Still figuring that out. I mean, you know, immediately after the campaign, it looked very similar to what it was before. It's like still getting out in the community, showing up at service events, trying to do whatever we can to get through this period. But, you know, I, I'm still figuring out the details of like an official thing. I'm really focused on building out the platform and the infrastructure that we've created. We have had an amazing network of people. And when I say of all ages, races, um, socioeconomic backgrounds who gave our campaign life, and aren't going anywhere, right? And so we need to continue to build, engage more people. And I'm interested in, in creating the infrastructure that allows us to continue to grow and also support other people who are running as well. Um, I, I, uh, yeah, I think that's really needed here, especially in Ohio, because you know one of, the, one of the weaknesses I would say, and this is across the country really, is you know, a lot of organizing dating back, grassroots organizing dating back to Obama campaigns, you know, that it was all driven from a presidential campaign candidate. And then when that candidate goes or when that campaign is over, it kind of just dies, right? And so we have to have more of the grassroots organizing that is connected to down ballot races, candidates, and also an infrastructure that's somewhat independent of the campaign so that we continue to build and it's not reinventing the wheel every single election. So that's what I'm interested in. Well, good. Well, I think that you are extremely well set up to do it. I'm so proud of you. Um, I'm really, I think it is actually very inspiring. As, as someone who I think started out, like I got to college and I was like, I'm gonna be the first black president. And then like, uh -huh. obviously that didn't work. <laughs> I didn't, I, I didn't make it to that point nor, and it, but I think that like I became more and more disillusioned by the people who wanted to be in leadership, yeah. in government. It's like, if you wanted to be, if you're like, I want to be a senator, I'm like, 
I'm going to keep my eye on you because yeah, you're right. probably the last person we need. <laughs> um, and so I think that it's nice and refreshing to meet people who have options and could do a lot of things with their life that could actually have a huge and positive impact on the world. And yet you're choosing to do this. That's true. Sick. Yeah, but a lot of the leaders that people are holding up right now in the pandemic era, you know, it's like the, uh, the head of New Zealand, Germany. It's like these are leaders that I, I think do represent that. And, and we can have that too, right? The people that are just competent, you know, it's not asking for a lot. It's just like, like their, their competence is like, that should be the minimum. Right. I, you don't have to inspire me. Just make sure I don't die. Right, right. But if you can inspire that? too, that's helpful. But yeah, just, yeah, just be honest. Obviously, you know, if you can do it with panache, I'll take that. I'll definitely yeah, take exactly. that. exactly. And we're going to so get we, there. Well, I guess like, are you, are you know, given that you, you know, you lost and obviously there's a lot of factors for that, like kind of what keeps you optimistic? Mm-hmm. Like what, I mean, besides the fact that we desperately need this change, what makes you at all confident that it's coming? If you are. I am. I am. I would assume you are. I am. Yes. Better be. Because there was a time, I'll say, you know, when I was in Washington, D.C. after after college that I couldn't imagine someone like me running for Congress, to be honest, in in, in Ohio, uh, that I, I didn't feel like I would have any feasibility, any, any op- opportunity or viability, I should say, any opportunity to be my authentic self and believe what I believe and say what I believe and get any traction because everything I was hearing and really the tradition that I was trained in in, in Washington is more of like a, a neoliberal, what we now call, you know, a neoliberal style um, of, of politics. And that never felt exactly right for me. I always felt I was a little bit more, you know, what we would now progressive and um, but didn't know if that would match with also not being some of the the personality types that you describe like could I just be my authentic self who isn't a psychopath and actually cares about people and ultimately is coming from a place of service and get any any traction and we did and so you know and and I was inspired by a lot of women who had done this in 2018 to feel like I can do it too and I hope that that just continues to ripple have a ripple effect throughout our state, here in our in central Ohio, across the country, and it's happening. And so many people are running progressive campaigns. You know, ours got a lot of a lot of pickup in the media and all that, but I've connected with so many people running across the country who who are doing it. And and we're just gonna grow. And ultimately, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday when I was walking down the street who was congratulating me on the campaign and, you know, older, older white guy. And he was like, you all are the future. And even though I'm not young, I want to be, I want to be part of that future and I want you guys to win. And so, you know, really committed to just trying to help us continue to build here in central Ohio. And I think we're seeing that as a, as a country and I, and I am optimistic for that reason. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Morgan, I really appreciate you joining me. My first guest. Thank you very much. So um, tell people how, how can we reach you? morganharper.org so our websites so i can sign up to get more info about anything that's going on and uh and yeah or email me morgan at morganharper.org all right awesome all right thank you so much morgan this is a delight keep yes. keep yeah keep keep believing you know oh yeah help me. i'm not going right, anywhere so much. <laughs> tell everybody you know i'm not going anywhere <laughs> I, I, I literally am <laughs> okay <laughs> okay bye all right good luck with the podcast thanks for bye. sure That was great. Uh, Thank you so much, Morgan, for coming. You were fantastic. I wish you all the best in your future endeavors, which will include unseating Miss Beatty next time, you know, if that's what you like to do. 
Um, so I want to just discuss a little bit of what we go and do, like the takeaways of this conversation. Um, so one thing I think we need to remember is that we got to ignore the status quo in terms of like what it takes to be a politician or qualified to become a candidate. First of all, most of these people do not know what they are doing. And so I think that, you know, Barack Obama just had his commencement address, God bless him. And he said that one thing that has become very clear is the leaders, you know, a lot of times don't know what they're doing and not even pretending to be in charge. So the typical pathway to become one of these people, uh, I think has very, is, is decreasing in credibility every fucking second. Uh, so I think like, don't worry about that. Don't let that distract you or intimidate you. I mean, the less you have in common with some of these incumbents, I think the better, honestly. So I think that if you have values and you think you have the thing that actually candidates should have, uh, and the, I guess the people in mind that you represent, then I think that that's enough. Um, plenty of people who are checking all the boxes ain't doing shit for us. So anyway, that's all I'll say about that. Um, I also think that in terms of how we need to be prepared as candidates, uh, how are you going to reimagine and leverage things like mailings, things like lit drops, all these things that are not in person? I mean, obviously campaigns have been skewing digital for quite some time now, but when you can't even hold events and you don't need to kind of fan out an entire organization of volunteers to go canvas people's doors, um, I think you have to figure out how to better leverage what access you do have to reach the public. Um, and I think that utilizing digital tools and trying to figure out what you can do with non-contact, contactless uh, avenues is, is really important. Lastly, and this is a pretty unique idea that I think is going to start gaining traction, is we need an agency of people that is nonpartisan that is able to step people through this complicated and dynamic and ever-changing process to vote. It should not be on candidates on top of running a campaign and trying to make sure that like they have the money and the staff and the energy to kind of run what that takes. They also now have to explain how to vote to all of the voters in order for them to even get the votes. That should not be on them. I mean, first of all, Lots of us don't even, you know, a lot of people don't even have jobs. So the more jobs we can do that kind of make our situation have more efficacy and give people something that's really positive uh, and encourages civic engagement, we got to do that. And so I think that a government agency that can spring up around elections, just like the census, and can guide people through what might be a different every time voting scenario, I think is a fantastic idea and one that I would love to see pursued. So that's this episode of What We Gonna Do. Morgan, again, thank you so much for joining us. You're fantastic. And I cannot wait for you to eventually unseat Joyce, if that is what you choose to do. You got, uh, if not a voter, because I'm unlikely to move to Ohio, but you definitely have a supporter. Uh, and so thank you everyone for tuning in and check out uh, our next episode tomorrow with Robbie Apple.